This is the fourth talk in a series of talks on the seven stages of the spiritual path, titled Stage 4, Purification of the Mind, recorded June 22, 1997, at the Center for Sacred Sciences in Eugene, Oregon. So today I'm going to present the fourth in a series of talks on the seven stages of the spiritual path. And the fourth stage is the purification of the mind. And so far we've talked about, first, the awakening of faith, that there is some other transcendent dimension to this world, something more than just the forms we're familiar with, that is a source of ultimate happiness. And this leads to an investigation of the teachings of various mystical traditions, various teachers and so forth. Usually people go around to workshops and come to a place like this, read books and whatnot. And this culminates in making a commitment to a certain teacher or set of teachings or set of practices. You explore, you find what's right for you, and then you decide to follow this particular way, this particular presentation of the teachings. And in the course of trying to start a practice, maybe you start practicing meditation or start trying to keep precepts and so forth, most uh, seekers usually start to get involved in an internal conflict. The old self resists this uh, new discipline in your life and taking this new road, and so there's a, a lot of back and forth, and sometimes you have to exercise a lot of discipline at this stage, and there's a lot of conflict. And then some people find legitimately that right now they're not ready for a spiritual path, and that's a good thing to know. If you continue, though, in this particular stage, you find that slowly but surely the old pleasures of life, the old worldly pursuits, no longer give you the same satisfaction they did before. So you really end up in this stage with your will stymied. It's like you just don't have any choice. You can't go back to the old life because it's just not satisfying to you. So there's no choice but to keep going forward. And at this point, the seeker really embarks on the spiritual voyage in earnest. Last time I compared this previous stage, this uh, unification of self, where this conflict ends in a, in a new identity as a spiritual seeker, as a stage really where you're at the port, at the harbor, you're getting ready to go, and you're deciding whether you actually want to go on this voyage, and maybe you take your boat out and you sail it around the bay a little bit to test it out and so forth, but now you're really ready to sail out through the Golden Gate and out into the open sea. And... This voyage, this quest, can take two basic forms, and by no means mutually exclusive. If you've already had a very strong experience of the divine in your life, so it's not something you just believe in, but you've actually experienced this, felt it, then usually such a person is on a quest for more of that, on a quest for God, for the divine, for whatever words you want to use for that. And in the Hindu Sanskrit language, there's a technical term for this, and that's bhakti. It's a path mostly associated with devotion. If not, and many seekers don't start with this strong sense of the divine, I didn't in the beginning, then usually the quest is for your true self, based on the question, who am I? Well, who am I really? What am I really doing here? And in the Sanskrit language, the technical term for that is uh, janana the path of knowledge. 
But really, both these lead to the same end. And for most seekers, by the way, there'll be elements of both. It's really more of a question of emphasis. But they lead to the same end. The Hindu mystic Ananda Moyamai said, To realize the true self is to realize God, and to know God is to know one's true self. So, why should this be the case? Well, because from a mystic's point of view, God, Brahman, Buddha nature, the Tao, pure consciousness, again, whatever name you want to use, is your true self. That is who you actually are. This is why the Christian mystic Meister Eckhart wrote, Some people think that they will see God as if he were standing there and they here. It is not so. God and I, we are one. Zen master Wei Ning insists that our very self-nature is the Buddha, and apart from this nature, there is no other Buddha. So even though in Buddhism they don't have an idea of God, they're saying the same thing, that there is no Buddha out there. The Buddha is your true nature. Just like Meister Eckhart saying, is God's not out there. You're not going to see God as an object. God is who you essentially are. So this, in fact, from a mystic's point of view, is actually true of everything. Every single thing is a manifestation of this divine. The clock is a manifestation of the divine. The pillow is a manifestation of the divine. The cat, she's a manifestation of the divine. And this is why the great Sufi, uh, Rumi, great poet, wrote, We and our existences are non-existence. Thou art absolute existence, showing thyself as perishable things. So, really what a mystical path is all about is simply realizing this truth that the mystics testify to for yourself. Because it's not just something to understand intellectually. It's actually to experience the world and yourself this way to realize that it is true. That's why there has to be a journey. That's why there has to be a quest. That's why there have to be practices. So, what you're starting out to do, really, is to test and see if what these mystics are saying is true. And whether you're a bhakti, or whether your approach is basically janani, after this unification of self, this stage where you've uh, resolved this inner conflict, then you enter into first the stage of the purification of the mind and then the illumination of the heart. Now, as I said at the very beginning of this series, presenting the stages in this way is just giving you a kind of a typical archetype of what a seeker might go through. So you have to remember this is not some sort of rigid developmental schema here. This is just a general overall guideline of what most mystics and most traditions have found. And this is particularly true of these next two stages, the stage of purification of the mind and illumination of the heart. And in fact, heart and mind here in our language are quite separate, but in other cultures there isn't that sort of separation. So we're really talking about different aspects of one thing, that deepest core of who you are. And in these stages there's a lot of overlap. So I'm going to discuss them separately, but these two stages particularly are not as clear-cut as some of the others. So today we'll talk just about the purification of the mind, what that's about and what that results in. 
And the first question to ask is, why should a purification of the mind be necessary to begin with? Well, if it's true that you and all things are manifestations of the divine, then the question is, why don't you realize it? Why isn't it just obvious to everybody? And mystics in all traditions answer in one way or another, because we suffer from a root delusion. The delusion that we're something else other than the divine. That we're some finite, limited being, soul, ego, entity. Different cultures have different ways of conceiving the self, the little self. But however we conceive of it, we truly believe and experience that's what we are. This little self, this ego, living in a world of independently existing objects. Is that true of you? Ask yourself, is this the way I experience the world? And here I am sitting in this body, I'm looking out, and there are all these bodies out there, and they all exist independently of the other, and so forth. So, what mystics are saying, that experience, that very experience that you're having right this minute, is the root delusion. And that experience masks the underlying unity and divinity of all this. It's a projection. It's an imaginary projection onto experience. So as long as there's that projection, you cannot realize the true nature of things. In the East, they have a very nice analogy for this. It's like somebody walking along a path and they see a snake coiled up by the side of the path and they're startled and they jump back. And then they go look more closely and they see that it's a rope, a coiled piece of rope. So the mind is projected onto this rope, a snake. As long as you're seeing the snake, you cannot see the rope. So the delusion has to vanish, and then you see the rope. This is why Shankara, a great Hindu mystic, wrote, The seeker after liberation must work carefully to purify the mind. When the mind has been made pure, liberation is as easy to grasp as the fruit which lies in the palm of your hand. Now, Usually, this purification of the mind is a long process because this root delusion of I and other subject and object, self and the world, gives rise to uh, all sorts of secondary delusions. For instance, one of the most common is because we believe we are a self existing in a world of objects, then we think that these objects can make us happy. If we can possess them and grab them, they can make us happy, and we become attached to them. But one of the clues that these things are not independently existing objects is that they're all impermanent. And because they're impermanent, they're always changing, and they're always dissolving and eventually vanishing away. So our attachment, our grasping at them, inevitably causes suffering. Really, it's like you know trying to catch the wind. I mean, you can't catch the wind. Now... Most seekers by this stage of the path have some insight into this already that everything's impermanent, otherwise they wouldn't be on a spiritual path and they wouldn't have gotten this far to begin with. But these attachments are very deep-rooted 
and they've been built up over at least one lifetime, and if you're looking at it from a Hindu or Buddhist point of view, for many lifetimes. And so they persist. Even though you might have an intellectual understanding, they persist. So this is why the Tibetan master Tsongkhapa writes, if you do not initially turn your mind away from this life, it is an obstacle to the path. Another this worldly life. If you don't really make an effort to abandon these attachments to things. So the guiding principle of this stage is detachment. And you'll find this in all traditions. Teresa of Avila, who was a great Christian mystic, she says, There is no doubt, by persevering in this detachment and abandonment of everything, we shall attain our object. It's a fundamental principle in all mystical traditions. But in our culture, the word has an unfortunate connotation which is not meant in mystical traditions. Detachment does not mean coldness and indifference. It's very important to understand that. And some modern teachers don't even use the word detachment because it has in our language that connotation. And they'll use the word letting go, which is perfectly all right, except that when you read through all these great classics, you're going to hear detachment, detachment, detachment. So I'm not willing to give up the word. I, I want to correct misperceptions of it. It means really letting go, ceasing to cling to impermanent things. And it does involve some discipline. It's a resisting to act on selfish desires. And it also has the connotation of simplifying life, letting go of what's superfluous in your life. When you're on a spiritual path, particularly in this stage, if you examine your life, there are a lot of things you can let go. There are just frivolous activities. But ultimately, true detachment is not gained through this discipline. This discipline is necessary for most people at this stage of the path, exercising a little self-control. But that isn't what produces true detachment. What produces true detachment is insight. Your own insight into the futility of grasping after impermanent things. When you yourself see that, and when you yourself see that that's what's causing the suffering, then there's no effort to detachment. And an analogy that I like to use is if somebody came to you with a hot coal in their hand, and they said, oh, I got so much pain in my hand. And you said to them, yes, well, you see, you're holding this hot coal, let it go. But somehow they weren't making that connection. Then your job as a teacher is just to get them to make that connection, however you can. Once they make the connection, once they say, oh, ah, that's what's causing it, there's no problem to drop the hot coal. It doesn't require any big deal to let it go. So real detachment comes from the, your own insight that you have in your own experience that you see, aha, yes, what the mystic's saying are true, not because I read it, but because I actually now am experiencing it. So, gaining this direct and detailed insight into the impermanence of phenomena is one of the very first things to be done in this stage. You can watch your experience closely and study it closely and really come to experience this as a moment-to-moment -moment process. And most seekers by this uh, stage in the path have started some sort of meditation practice. 
And if you're far enough along where you've developed some stability in meditation, so your mind can stay in one object without being distracted by a lot of thoughts and impulses and so forth, then you can start to use that mind to watch impermanence. And you can start by sitting on your pillow and you watch how sensations in your body arise and pass. You always think of your body as something so solid, it's just there. But when you really examine it, what is it really? Well, it's just all these sensations arising and passing in consciousness. Evening or at dawn is a wonderful time to meditate. You see how the light changes and all the colors change. You think, oh, that ceiling's white. If you examine it, it's not white at all. Over here, it's, it's got very yellow cast. Over here, it's got quite gray cast. In the morning, it'll have a very blue hue. In the evening, when the sun's coming in this way, it has a very warm hue. Constantly shifting. Sounds are constantly rising and passing in consciousness. All of our experience is constantly shifting. Everything is impermanent. We're not just talking about the fact we know mountains eventually dissolve away. We're talking about the actual experience of impermanence in our lives. And so you can study this. And then when you learn to see this on your meditation pillow and you become sensitive to it, then you can start to observe this in your everyday life. Walking down the street. We walk down the street and normally we think, well, I'm walking past all these solid objects, these houses and trees. Well, if you pay attention to your experience, these are all rising and passing in consciousness as you walk. Your experience is constantly shifting. There's nothing permanent whatsoever in your experience. So this kind of actual experience and actual insight is what allows you to understand for yourself a teaching like Abraham Abu Lafi's. Abraham Abu Lafi was a great Kabbalist. And he writes, All is imagination, like a dream which passes by in the night, which, when the sleeper awakes from it, thus shall he find it. And even when he looks at the day past, he will see that all his days are like passing shadows. When we really begin to experience the impermanence of everything, this tendency to grasp starts to automatically lessen. Detachment just arises because you yourself see that it's impossible. The second thing is to gain some detachment from our self-centered behavior because this is something that just perpetuates this illusion of self. We keep acting as though we were limited, finite beings and then that just keeps perpetuating us. And this is what keeping moral precepts and practicing virtues is about on a mystical path. As I've often said, it's not about piling up brownie points so you can get into heaven. These are really disciplines to A, interrupt self-centered behavior, and then to examine it, put a spotlight on it. <clears throat> it's very important from a mystical point of view that moral practices like these are not primarily social. If everyone practiced them, we would have a better society, but that's sort of gravy. That's not the primary intent here. They are spiritual practices for you, designed for you so that you can gain insight. This is why Al-Ghazali, a great Sufi, says, The aim of moral discipline is to purify the heart from the rust of passion and resentment till, like a clear mirror, it reflects the light of God. So it's an instrument for self-purification of delusion from a mystical point of view.
the very first thing, if we're going to interrupt this habit of self-centered behavior, is we have to become aware of it. And resolving to keep specific precepts does this. If you every day sit down and resolve you're going to keep a certain set of precepts or just start with one, then during the day you'll start to become aware of how much you actually violate it without even knowing. It's not you're a bad person, it's just a, a semi-conscious habit. We can use the example of charity. Let's say you took a precept of practicing charity. Now, to make this precept beneficial for you, it's much better to practice charity or practice generosity every day or every other day or often. Rather than say, at the end of the year, before taxes, I'm going to write a check for, you know, $500 to my favorite charity. Uh, that's fine. The charity will appreciate it. The people who receive it will appreciate it. But you only get the chance to practice once a year. It's not much of a practice. But supposing you took a precept to give away a quarter of a day. That comes out to $1.75 a week. For most people, I think, in our culture, that's not excessive. It doesn't matter the amount here, by the way. If you're really strapped and you're living on welfare or something, you give a nickel away. It doesn't matter. And so how are you going to give a quarter away? Well, in the stores around here, these little cans on the counters, you know, whether for polio or for uh, March of Dimes, uh, right. There are plenty of opportunities to give a quarter away. There are people panhandling on the streets and whatever. And then it's very interesting, if you do this practice, what it reveals about yourself. For a lot of people, when you make this resolve to give this quarter away, and you get there and you're standing on the counter and you're buying your quarter milk and you see the little can, you'll feel all this resistance come up. And you watch that. It's not a question of trying to repress that. This is the point. This is creating this opportunity. Why are you resisting? For different people, it's different things. Some people may feel embarrassed. You know, it's kind of corny to put your quarter in there. Everybody's around looking at you, right? Or maybe you feel uh, that you're going to be taken advantage of. Your mind starts wondering, is this really a legitimate charity? How much of this money really goes to the people they're serving? All these things the mind cooks up and notice that they're all based on self. I'm being taken advantage of. I'm going to look silly. I'm going to look corny, whatever it is. So you can see right there how that sense of self, that defensiveness and protectiveness automatically interferes with loving and giving and charity. You can see the mechanism right there in that little situation. And this is the whole trick to see it. And then the attachment is to let that go. It's not to be self-critical or feel guilty. You just see what's going on. You just let it go and you put your quarter in and see what happens. And if you persist over a period of time, most people discover, oh, it actually feels good to give. It doesn't feel good to be stingy. It's suffering to be stingy. So you learn from your own experience in these little ways. And if you do this kind of practice, more and more you'll get a sense of your own strong attachments based on your own personal desires and aversions. Or to put it more simply, your likes and dislikes. What we like, what we don't like. How much that controls our lives. This is why the Bhagavad Gita, the great classic of Hindu mysticism, says, likes and dislikes are arrayed in whatever our senses grasp. A man should not come under the sway of likes and dislikes. They are his opponents. Why? Because they're based on this delusion of self. And so it's, I like, I don't like, I want this, I don't want that. Right in the center of that is this whole experience of I, 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 I. And 
again, dividing the world up based on what we want and don't want creates this whole dualistic perception of the world. The world is divided into what's good for me and what's bad for me. And it masks the underlying universality of the divine and the fact that everything is divine. If you watch closely, you'll see also that this judgment of like and dislike that governs all our activities, really it's operating like a binary computer program with a yes and no. And you watch how robotic our behavior is. It's just like automatic. You like something, you go for it. You don't like it, push it away. It's just like you could uh, train rats to run through a maze, you know, or train human beings. And there's two doors. Uh, I mean, there are two signs and doors. One says, you like this, and the other says, you don't like this. It's totally predictable. A human being will go through there, and they'll only open the doors which says, you'll like this. They'll never open the door says, you don't like it. And you watch your own behavior. You see, this is not freedom. This is not spontaneity. This is enslavement. This is bondage when mystics talk about being uh, in bondage to personal desires and so forth. And I'll give you one example from my spiritual path. I took a vow of uh, celibacy, a limited celibacy. And I was at the time working in Hollywood in a very glamorous environment. And in taking this vow, uh, it wasn't that I was being all that promiscuous or anything, but I took this vow as a celibacy to being not just doing the outward deed, but to watch myself and to watch how sexual desires governed my life. And I was absolutely shocked to realize how much my relationships, particularly with uh, women of the opposite sex, you know, between the ages of, I don't know, 18 and 45 or whatever, was totally controlled by this sort of undercurrent of flirtation. And it was all a head game really. It wasn't that I, you know, was jumping in and out of bed with people, but the game was, even in a business meeting with a woman executive, undercurrent of this was this game of seduction. And the idea was, does she think I'm attractive? Could I seduce her if the opportunity was right? And if I left that meeting feeling that she felt I was sexually attractive and that under the right circumstances, maybe I could seduce her, it was a little victory, you know, sort of a, a psychic notch on, on the Psychic phallus? I don't know. <laughs> this was something I was totally unaware of normally until I took this vow of celibacy. And I was shocked at how much of my behavior, what came out of my mouth, what body language was controlled by this. It is the undercurrent of our culture. I mean, you just turn on the TV. The whole message is buy this car and it's sexy or uh, use this perfume, it's sexy, you know, or ridiculous things. Buy this egg beater because it's sexy. So what this vow of celibacy did when I had made up my mind not to act this way, it's not that it wiped it all out. It brought it all up into the light of consciousness. I could observe it. And once I could observe it, then I could practice detachment from it. I just let it go. So there's an example of how these kinds of practices of uh, precepts and virtues work. And it's important here to know that it's not that desires and aversions cease to arise. is they arise, but you don't have to automatically act on them. Do you see what I mean? And you don't have to be enslaved to them. And this is the beginning of gaining true freedom. And you can start to gain this true freedom from your practice. Then it's important here to practice detachment from past conditioning. 
And one of the things that we do is we, we always are looking to blame someone else for our suffering. And a big part, especially in our culture, is to blame our past. You weren't born in the right circumstances. You weren't born to a wealthy family or something like that. Uh, you blame your parents. Uh, you blame your grandparents. You blame the fact you grew up in a city. Whatever it is, uh, this whole tendency to blame others. And then in the present, you know, you, your suffering is never your suffering. It's always the fault of your spouse or your uh, partner or your boss or your landlord or somebody else's to blame. It's very important to take responsibility for our suffering and to realize that it's true that outer conditions act as a catalyst that can trigger this. But if you watch carefully, the suffering is yours. It arises from within. It's something that's going on inside you. So it's, it's your response to your environment. The suffering isn't out there in the environment. The suffering's in your response. So it's very important to stop blaming others, take responsibility for your suffering. And for most people, this requires some coming to terms with your past, with your parents, with how you were brought up, with the school you went to, with, uh, you know, the bully that beat you up in third grade or whatever it is, some coming to terms with this. And there are practices that you can use. You can use meditation, the serviceable mind to sit down, to recall events, and then to bring them vividly to mind, to be willing to re-experience the hurt and the pain and to practice forgiveness. This works both ways. Maybe you're suffering from guilt because in the past you've really hurt somebody that you regret. And so you can do the same thing. You can recall that to mind and you can practice forgiveness for yourself. Not for me, me, poor me, but seeing that younger person who is immature and ignorant, who did something stupid, and if you really are carrying around a burden, in this stage of the path, it's a good time to make atonement to people that you've hurt, if there's some way you can. If you can call up somebody and say, you know, I'm really sorry, I know that what I did 10 years ago was dreadful and really hurt you and I didn't mean it, it's very good to, to clear the air that way. At this stage, it's very possible you may want to go to a psychotherapist to help you bring out repressed experiences, events, feelings. Because we cannot practice detachment from things that are hidden. They have to come to light. And if you look at therapy from a spiritual point of view, it can be a very valuable tool in your path. The big difference between most therapies today and a spiritual path is most therapies end with uh, getting you well-adjusted so you can carry on better in life, which is fine. The spiritual path looks much deeper than that. It sees that the problem of suffering is much more deeply rooted. But certainly to able to uh, go back and, and see in your past how these patterns of suffering conditioning started can be a tremendous help. The freedom, though, always comes in the moment. The freedom comes in the moment where you actually have that insight and you see this is causing me suffering. And then there's this letting go, this dropping of it, this forgiveness. You know, mystics are always accused of trying to escape reality. Oh, they don't want to deal with reality. They're off there contemplating their navels and so forth. From a mystic's point of view, it's really worldly people who are always trying to escape reality. They're always trying to run away from their suffering. They never want to deal with their suffering. And they're on a tremendous treadmill, running, running, and running from everything that they don't like about life and trying to grasp everything they do like. And it's, uh, from this perspective, it looks, again, silly. But mystics insist you must face reality. You must really look into yourself. You must really look into suffering. 
the cause of suffering is right there in the suffering. That's where you're going to find the cause and that's how you're going to root it out. So a spiritual path is not a, you know, airy-fairy escape trip. It's really about facing these things about yourself and the world, facing reality. Tibetan Lama Choygyam Trungpa describes this very forcefully. Once we commit ourselves to the spiritual path, it is very painful and we are in for it. We have committed ourselves to the pain of exposing ourselves, of taking off our clothes, our skin, nerves, heart, brains, until we are exposed to the universe. Nothing will be left. It will be terrible, excruciating, but that is the way it is. Not always that terrible, excruciating for everybody, but for some people it can be. But it's a good warning here about what the spiritual path entails. and We shouldn't have any illusions about that. And then, finally, we want to start gaining some insight into the impermanence of all the phenomena that we think of as ourselves. So again, whatever you identify as yourself, whether it's your body or your own thoughts or your emotions or whatever it is you think makes up this limited, finite entity, you want to start observing that. And you can start in meditation. You observe. You think you're your emotions, and you can actually do practices where you recall some incident that made you angry, and then watch how anger arises, and then let it go. Think of something you desire. Watch desire arise. Let it go. All these things. And start watching them. And you'll see they arise and they pass, but the sense of you doesn't. You might ask, who's experiencing all this? You watch your thoughts. Thoughts are rapidly going. You can't uh, hang on to thoughts. They're really like the wind. You can't even grab them for a moment. Watching your body sensations. And they rise and pass. You see this in detail, and they're all arising and passing, but the experiencer is not. The experiencer is there. So it's through this careful observation that you yourself get the insight, and the detachment just happens. Oh, well, I can't be these things. That's how the Buddha put it. Therefore, Whatever there be of bodily form, of feeling, perception, mental formations, or self-consciousness, whether one's own or external, whether gross or subtle, one should understand according to reality and true wisdom, this does not belong to me, this am I not. Now again, this is not something to be taken on faith, and if you say, oh, I know the, the Buddha was a great wise man, I'll believe him, won't do you a bit of good. You'll still have this delusion. So you have to go look for yourself. Is this true? And you do it through this observation, this watching. And it's just the same way with external phenomena. When you see the impermanence of this, then uh, detachment automatically happens. Your, your grip loosens on all this stuff. You cease to identify so strongly with these things. And so when they arise, when they pass, it no longer bothers you. You say, well, this is just the way things are. Now, I said these attachments run deep, and they've been built up over a long time, so this stage of the path is usually, for most people, the longest stage. 
And when I say the longest stage, I don't mean, well, it's, you know, six months. I mean, it can last years. And for most people, the whole spiritual path will last years, and this stage will last the bulk of those years. So the virtue that has to be learned in this stage is patience. Patience, patience. You have to go about your practice with patience. And you can compare this to working with animals. If you've ever tried to train animals or you know people who have trained animals, what's needed is patience. The animals will learn. And you just have to patiently work with them, patiently work with them. But they're the ones who have to learn. Well, the same thing in a certain sense of working with yourself. You can't force yourself in a crash course way. It's through this patient examination and the meticulousness of the practice. And that's what's very important, to practice this meticulously. Teresa of Avila wrote, Sisters, let us strive to get to know ourselves better and better, even in the very smallest matters. And that's what's very important here. It's the failure of seekers in this stage to be patient and meticulous about the practice that becomes the biggest obstacle to moving on in this stage. Because people get a few insights and they get very complacent. They get very proud of their insights. Oh, yeah, now I, I got a little flash of impermanence. Okay, so I don't have to worry about that anymore. And they're really very superficial insights. They're very exciting because you're seeing things you never saw before. But there are deep, deep insights to be had, and the only way to go about it is to be persistent and do these things particularly. Otherwise, if you get complacent, you have a few insights, you get sort of lazy in your practice, proud in your practice, you know, it's like you sailed out of the Golden Gate here, but you're just sailing up and down, still inside of land. You're not really leaving the coast, you know, not really moving out. This is why a Tibetan master, Dugo Kensi, gives this advice. He says, Every evening, remember all that you have thought and done during the day and determine how much was motivated by selfishness. It is important to look at your most subtle attitudes and intentions. Never think that any tiny act is insignificant just because it is so small. For the least negative action can set off devastating consequences. In the same way, a single minute spark can set fire to an entire forest. You know, our lives are really like tapestries. And you look at a beautiful tapestry and you see the, the great drama of it, you know, and the sweep of it and the colors and all that. But if you look closely, a tapestry is made up of one stitch at a time. That's what it's made up of. And if you want to undo the tapestry of suffering the tapestry of delusion, the tapestry of ignorance, you really have to go in there and start undoing stitch by stitch. Now, it is true, as you get good at that, you start to pull out one stitch and a whole bunch will fall out, which is kind of nice. If you had to go back and undo every stitch you made, you'd spend the rest of your life undoing what you did. It goes faster than that, but it's in the details. It's really in the detail. And when you watch how your own suffering continues to, to be built, it's happening moment by moment. So it's interrupting in the moment that's very important. That's where the real work is. And if you do this, you will find suffering decreases. Because really you start to get this sense that this self that you've been hanging on to, that you've been trying to enhance or defend, is a big burden. 
and you can hear your own mind chattering away. I like this. I want that. I don't want that. I'm afraid of this. What's going to happen to me? And when you get a certain detachment from that stream of self-centered chatter going on, it starts to feel like a bird. It's no longer that you want to hang on to this self. You start to say, shut up, stop worrying about it. Because that's all the self is, a big bundle of worry. Forget it, relax. It's not that the mind's just suddenly going to shut up, but you get this disidentification, this detachment, and you start to get spaciousness and peace, and you start to relax, even though the mind may be going on. Yes, but what's going to happen to me? What's going to happen to me, you know? Well, you, you're going to drop dead someday, so just get over that. That's the reality. Forget it. That's true, though, you know. And then when we begin to let go of this identification, when we begin to relax and our suffering starts to drop away, something quite unexpected happens. Flashes of the light of consciousness itself, the light of God, start to shine through. It's not just a negative condition of not having suffering, but you actually start to get uh, glimpses of what mystics are talking about, this divinity, this God, this Buddha nature, which is always described in the most wonderful glowing terms, even though mystics say ultimately we can't talk about it. <laughs> Here's how Eddie Hillison, who's a 20th century uh, mystic, here's what she says about this. She says, With each moment that passes, I shed more wishes and desires and attachments. There are moments when I can see right through life and the human heart, when I understand more and more and become calmer and calmer, and am filled with a faith in God which has grown so quickly inside me that it frightened me at first, but has now become inseparable from me. And for those of you who don't know Eddie Hillelsum, she's writing this in the midst of the Nazi persecutions in Holland. She was a Jew on her way to Auschwitz, where she died. So she can discover this in that situation. Well, we should be able to discover it in this lap of luxury that we live in. Now, really, for a lot of people, what happens when this light of consciousness starts to shine through, you know, so far in the path, most people have been driven by the stick of suffering, and now they start to see the carrot of, of the divine. So now there's this tremendous attraction. Oh, it's not just about getting rid of suffering, but there's actually something here that's uh, unimaginable, unbelievable almost. And they start redoubling their efforts. So now people really get into their practice. And they start practicing hours and hours a day, and they want to get more and more meticulous about it, and the, the whole impetus turns around. And then something funny happens. The practices themselves start not to work. It's like you've exhausted them. There you are sitting to meditate because you've had this great experience in your meditation. You're trying to get it back. You're trying to get it back. And they don't work anymore. And this goes with the other practice. Suddenly, it seems like everything's come to a stop. And you're plunged into what we could call a crisis of faith. It's not that you've lost your faith, but that the practices no longer work, so your faith is being tested. What was your faith based on? Was the fact you were going to get goodies from all this? And now you're not getting the goodies anymore. Here's how Mirabai, great Hindu mystic, described this. And she had a practice of devotion to Krishna. And she says, For your sake I abandon the world and my family. Why do you now forget me? 
You lit the fire of pain of absence, but you have not returned to put it out. I have practiced remembrance of thy name in my heart day and night. Again and again I call upon thee in grievous affliction. This world is a threatening sea surrounding me on every side. My boat has broken. Hoist the sail quickly before it sinks. This forlorn one waits anxiously for her Lord. Grant her thy proximity. Actually, it's nice because she's using this analogy of the boat on the open sea. So it's like you've set out on your voyage. You've got your boat, which is your path. You've got your North Star, which is if you're on a mystical path, that you know that the end of the path is enlightenment, gnosis, whatever. That's what you steer by. You've got your sails and your ropes and pulleys and your rudder. These are all your practices. You've got your teachings. These are the maps, you know, guide you. And there you're going along great. You're really learning how to sail well. And, da, 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 da. and suddenly the wind dies. And suddenly there you are, stuck in the doldrums, just floating around. Nothing's happening. Move that rudder, hoist the sails up and down. Nothing's happening. So what is all this about? Why does this happen? Well, Rumi, the great Sufi, gives a wonderful explanation. He says, a person assumes that he will drive out blameworthy characteristics by his own labor and struggle. When he fights very hard and has exhausted all his forces and means and is in despair, then God says to him, did you think this would happen through your power and activity and intelligence? Seek forgiveness for these thoughts and imaginings, for you flattered yourself that the thing would be achieved through the use of your own hands and feet and not that it would be achieved through us. Now that you see what has come to pass through us, seek forgiveness, for he is forgiving. So the whole idea here is, you see, it's still this ego in there. The ego thinks it's going to be enlightened through its own efforts. Spiritual pride has come in. And we've lost sight of the fact that what's driving this practice is the wind, the, the wind of grace, something that is not from the ego, something that is not from you. And we take it for granted. In fact, this is the wind that drives all of life, and we're always taking it for granted, we're always missing it. And it's only when it's withdrawn and withheld that you realize, wait a minute, it wasn't the steering, and it wasn't the hoisting of the sails, and it wasn't the reading the maps that's pushing all this along. There's something else here. Not that you don't have to steer, not that you don't have to become skillful about working with sails and reading maps, but without the wind, nothing happens. So in this crisis of faith, will has been stymied once again. The practice has been exhausted up to a point. There's nothing more for you to do here. There's no place to go. And so... You have no choice. You just have to let that go. That will has to surrender just a little bit more. There's no wind. There's nothing you can do about it. Relax. Surrender. And then the wind starts coming up again. So this crisis of faith can have several kinds of resolutions. One is that it may fully awaken what's called your inner teacher. That is your own wisdom and intelligence that we all have, but we don't notice it. Ibn Arabi, another great Sufi, writes about this. He says, when man renounces his own individual desire, shrinks from his own ego, and prefers his Lord over all else, 
then God sets up before him, in place of the form of his own soul, the form of a divine guidance, which casts to him from his Lord that within which lies his felicity. In other words, in place of yourself, something else happens. There's a source of wisdom and guidance that casts from his Lord, that shows you where your felicity lies. It shows you the path, how to arrive. You may receive what mystics call a wound of the heart, particularly if your path has been devotional. This is what Catherine of Genoa says about it. She's actually writing about herself here, even though she's talking to third person. She says, A ray of God's love wounded her heart, making her soul experience a flaming love arising from the divine fount. At that instant, she was outside herself, beyond intellect, tongue, or feeling. Fixed in that pure and divine love, henceforth, she never ceased to dwell in it. So this isn't just one experience of love. This is in the sense of love that flows with you. Again, it's another form of this grace. You may actually have a Gnostic flash, a little bit of a glimpse of enlightenment. You actually, for a moment, see this reality that the mystics have been talking about. And so if it's just a flash, you'll lose it, but you'll know now for certain that the mystics aren't just bananas. Here's a description of this from a 16th century Confucian, Kao Pang Lung. He had been practicing very hard, meditating, and uh, nothing was happening, and he took this text with him, and he finally went up to this tower, and he just sort of relaxed, and he's reading this text. And the text says, The myriad changes all exist within the person. In reality, there is not a single thing. And then he says, Suddenly I realized this and said, It really is like this. In reality, there is not a single thing. Suddenly it was as if a load of a hundred pounds had fallen to the ground in an instant. It was as if a flash of lightning had penetrated the body and pierced the intelligence. And then he tells in a story that actually didn't last. Uh, he lost it, and then he you know, had to practice further. But in any case, what is unusual or what is new about these particular insights and experiences is they clearly come from the divine side, if you like. They clearly aren't something that you've earned or done or can own. Whereas other insights into impermanence and so forth, you say, ah, yes, now I see. You see, now still there's me in there. I see, I see, I see. But these are real gifts. And this is the fifth grace, the grace that enters your path at the end of this stage. And that is the revelation of grace itself. Revelation of this whole other dimension that is pulling, pushing, bearing you along is the word I'm looking for. And at this point, if you can relax into that, if you can surrender into that, this is what Theophane the Recluse says. All have grace. Only one thing is necessary, to give this grace free scope to act. Grace receives free scope insofar as the ego is crushed and the self-centered passions uprooted. Those who commit themselves irrevocably to grace will pass under its influence and it shapes and forms them in a way known only to itself. 
And this shaping and forming of grace is what happens in the next and most delightful stage of the path, the illumination of the heart, which we will take up next time. So if you have any questions or comments, speak up. Yeah. Uh, two questions. One is like the, uh, the letting go. And it seems to me it almost sounds like a switch. But the matter of fact is the more you try to get rid of something that is to resist this, the more it persists. Yes. This, uh, the second one is when you talk, I think um, it was, I think even Arabic. Mm-hmm. When he talks about the heart, now is the heart at this point is is like conscious, or what does it mean? Okay, let's deal with the first question first, and then the second one. The first question is, uh, let me say it back to you to make sure I've got it right. That if you try to resist desires, they persist. You get into a battle, right. and you said it sounds like the letting goes like a switch, right? And I think that's a a very nice way of describing it, and it is true. If you get into a battle with your desires, it'll become a fight, and you actually empower them. And the trick is, in a certain sense, to allow them to arise and be there, but not be commanded by them. Do you see what I mean? Not act on them. So this is the letting go. It's turning off the switch that connects you to the desire. So the desire arises and the desire passes, and you just allow it to happen. If you try to push the desire away or force it down, uh, then that whole inner struggle is going to persist through this stage of the path. You're going to have a lot of extra suffering here, and ultimately you're going to learn that it doesn't work. And so what you're going to learn is just to let it go, to just be detached from it, because you cannot get rid of it through an effort of will. Now. Over a period of time, some desires that are purely based on this illusion, I mean, that aren't biological desires, start to fade away. If you don't uh, buy into them, if you don't act on them, they'll just arise less and less, and eventually they won't arise, And you know. But it's not something that you do through some act of aggression against them. Is that helpful? Now, the second thing, I'm not sure that the Ibn Arabi quote here was about the heart. And you know, like in the language today, you know, follow your heart. Right. The way it's used in English, I mean, we have to talk about this because it's quite different in different languages, but the way I use it, heart and mind are two manifestations of something that we might have called soul at one time, although soul has this idea again of a thing, and I, I, I don't like the word soul for that reason. But if you think of it the way Poets use the word soul. It touched my soul. Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. It touched the very deepest part of me. Then you can think of heart and mind as two avenues into that. And one is an avenue of feeling and one is more an avenue of thought. But they both come from the same place. Our feelings and our thoughts are very much bound up together. And just watch your own psyche, see how that works. So when we talk about purifying the mind or purifying the heart or whatever. I'm talking about starting at the place, in the case of heart, of feeling, but something much deeper than what you superficially might consider 
your heart. So it's like answering a call that's coming from inside, from deep in your heart. You see? So you might say heart is like, a, I don't know, it's like a, a tunnel. You're looking down into this great mystery, what's down there. And what's coming out of it are, you know, feelings, emotions, and stuff like that. But the deeper you go in there, uh, the less and less they have that feeling of, these are my feelings, my emotions, and they have this quality of manifesting out of this mystery. Is that helpful? Uh, yeah, it does. Um, now you're saying the heart is the feeling. Even illusion could cause feeling to arise. Right. Okay. Now, but also there are noble things right. that would cause feeling to, to arise. arise. Right. So one would follow the noble things. I mean, thing which, which one... Well, you have to learn to distinguish yourself between what is a call of the divine... And what is a worldly call, let's say? So, generally speaking, as I say, if you're walking down the street and you pass an ice cream store and there's this desire says, oh, let me go get some ice cream, that is, generally speaking, uh, not as deep a calling as a calling that says there are people in trouble and I'm called to help them. That's a noble calling. Now, both of them you could describe in the English language as desires arising. One's a desire to help people, one's a desire for ice cream. The discrimination is in this, what is noble, what is selfless, what is divine from what is mundane, worldly, and selfish. And that's something you have to learn to do. You have to learn to distinguish. And the more you do the practice, the more that divine voice is evident. In the beginning, you know, it's, it's often describes the quiet little voice within. It's actually not so quiet. We're so distracted from it that we don't hear it. We don't pay any attention. But when you drop the distractions, it's already there. It just becomes more and more obvious. And so that's what you go with. I wondered if you could talk a little more about letting go, Joel. Um, when I'm thinking of, say I... Notice, I'm talking to somebody, I notice I have a jealous feeling or something. The jealousy arises in me mm-hmm. from attachment, and I can notice it, and I can, in my head, say, you know, talk, self-talk myself about the attachment. Mm-hmm. And, no, not necessary, and we're not separate in all of this, but, but I never quite know, you know, is it all unconscious then, just the noticing and the letting go, or, or is there something else to do? Well, it's not actually something that you do. It happens through your continuing to observe and be willing to observe it rather than push it away. Mm -hmm. So let's say you're talking to somebody and feelings of jealousy arise. Now, you don't want to uh, immediately say, oh, this is bad, I shouldn't be having these feelings. You want to actually experience them fully Mm -hmm. and you want to see that they are themselves suffering. It's not like they're going to cause suffering in the future. They themselves are suffering. And there will come a moment, and this is not something you can do, it happens spontaneously, where you just feel this letting go happen. And it's, it's like a little aha. But what you do have to do is persist in watching, you see what I mean? That I knew, and yet I wondered if, I wondered if that just happened. It does, and you have to persist with watching with a non-judgmental mind, with an open mind, with a spacious mind. Mm-hmm. 
And when that happens, it's it's a really quite marvelous. It's, it's a little, huh. And then the feelings will just dissolve away. And they may come back again, but the next time they come back, they're not as strong. And pretty soon, even when they arise, they just don't bother you anymore. Do you see? Yeah. One of the problems I have with that is that, you know, if a feeling like that would arise, I'm generally in, in interaction with mm-hmm. someone, and I cannot stop there and look at that because it's just the social rule requires that I continue paying attention to the person and what the person's saying. And then um, I frequently have so many of these feelings, recalling them is, is, you know, to look at them in meditation is nearly impossible. I just can remember maybe a few. Right. Well, this is part of our problem. This is why some people go off and become external renunciates to get away from the world. It's not because the world's a bad place. It's because there's an embarrassment of riches to practice with. We just don't know where to begin. (laughs) That's true. That is really the reason. So it's easier to simplify, you know, really simplify your life. But again, the trick is to do two things here, to cultivate then more spaciousness in meditation so that even when you're in the heat of the interaction there is that space of observing do you know and then even if you're in a a big argument or something there's still that sense of the witnessing and that's where part of you is saying oh this is very interesting look how upset i am look how angry i am or whatever that is how jealous i am you see and then as that's going on at a certain point there's this like a switch it doesn't mean it just all disappears. It's not like that. But there's a sudden, it's a disidentification, a delinking. Oh, it's not me, and then it's okay. It's, this doesn't bother you, you know? Well, let's bring the formal part of the morning to a close. And you're welcome to stay and have some tea and check out our library. It's in the corner of the house there. And until I see you again, peace to you all.